We are going to make our way in Scripture back to Luke chapter 2. As I had mentioned, as we were headed towards the new year, we are looking towards a study in Genesis, but just a little bit of uh, heads up on where we're going to be headed. Um, Next week, we're going to be having what we call the State of the Church Address. Um, That is a message that basically talks about where we have been as a church, uh, where we are currently, and where we are headed. Um, it's one of those messages that uh, always makes me uncomfortable every year, but uh, you all seem to enjoy me being uncomfortable. And so it is a time where if you are talking to someone that they're curious about Woodlawn Chapel and what we do and how we do it, it's a wonderful service to invite people to. You get to hear about our story and how we got here. And so we'll, we'll have that next week. And then the following week, which should be, if I did the math right, the 14th of January, we'll begin in the book of Genesis. So all that said, where we are today is in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at the days following the birth of Jesus. And as we come off of this season with uh, gifts and sugar and family and noise and more sugar and more family and more noise, uh, we're going to take a deep breath and we're going to look at those things that happened after Jesus arrived on the earth. Because oftentimes that's the question, isn't it? Like, here we've got Jesus, now what? Now what do we do? We, he's here, now what? And so what we find is, as the Christmas story we looked at last week in Luke chapter 2, is that after thousands of years of prophecy, it, that the Messiah had finally arrived. From the time of uh, Genesis and Adam and Eve, the promise of the seed of the woman, all the way through Abraham and Moses and King David, and then through the prophets with Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then even as we arrive at, at Daniel, this announcement of the Ancient of Days that Daniel sees there upon the throne, you have this promise of the Messiah coming, and yet what we found last week is of all people, of all groups that Messiah would be announced to, God chose the shepherds. And we read the story and and we think about it because the shepherds look so good in our nativity, but the reality is the shepherds were the lowest of the low in society. They were the group of people nobody wanted to invite over for Sunday dinner. Uh, These were the, the thieves and the outcasts and the unclean, and yet God chose this group of sinners to make the announcement that His Messiah had finally arrived. And here's the thing, once the word came to these guys, They could not wait to go share with everybody about Jesus. I mean, they were fired up. In fact, if you look with me at verse 20 of Luke 2, then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. These guys were excited about Jesus being on the scene, that He had finally arrived. This group of of sinners that Christ came to save. And so all that leads us up to verse 21, where we see, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. In verse 21, Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy or set apart or sanctified to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so what we find is Jesus, the Christ, was very much born under the law. It's important to remember that. In fact, we looked at it on Christmas Eve evening. I'll go there and read from Galatians chapter 4 in case 
you had too much hot chocolate and you can't remember. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4, we read this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And so Jesus was born under the law. In fact, subjecting Himself willingly, intentionally to the law so that He might become the fulfillment of the law. And so Jesus was born into this young Jewish family. He allows Himself to be subjected to the law so that He would become the fulfillment of the law. And what we see is even in His early days, even when He can't make decisions for Himself, His parents were bringing Him through so He could become the fulfillment of the law. And what we find is right there in Leviticus chapter 20, or chapter 12, I know you guys spent a ton of time in Leviticus, but there in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, they're told that the child at the day of eight days, they were to bring the child to the temple so he could be circumcised and also named. And so the child, Jesus, was brought there so that flesh could literally be removed from him. Now, oftentimes when we think about uh, circumcision, it makes us squeamish and uncomfortable. But understand what God was doing was putting something practical in place to make it clear what he was up to spiritually. He does this often in our lives. He puts something practical in place to actually show us a spiritual truth. And in this case, what he is literally doing, requiring of the males in Israel, is to remove a portion of their flesh. It's not just because he likes pain in our lives, but so that we can be spirit-led. This is why the Lord commands us, why he calls us to circumcise our hearts. We're called to circumcise, to remove the flesh from our hearts so that we cannot be led by the flesh any longer, but to actually be led by the Spirit. Now the flesh cries out, the flesh wants fed, the flesh wants us to obey its desires, its needs, but what God calls is for us to actually listen to the Spirit first. And so we find here is that Mary and Joseph, they bring the child there. He is circumcised, and it's in this spot that they give him the name Jesus. His name is Yeshua in the Hebrew. Literally translated, it means Jehovah is salvation. And so here is the salvation of the Lord. Jehovah is salvation brought to save us from the very law that He would fulfill. Fulfill. We also find that Mary, she is, according to Leviticus chapter 12 as well, purifying herself after birth. She has gone through the ritual days and she has been purified. She is now able to go back into the temple again. And now, as we consider this, again, I know you don't spend a ton of time there, but I was actually asked this question by a young couple, which I'm always excited when young people want to ask me about the Bible. And so I had a young couple a few weeks back, and they, they had a question about the Bible. I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. And then they said the words I didn't want to hear um, because their question was from Leviticus chapter 12. I'm like, oh, stink. On the outside of my face, I look very excited. But inside, I'm like, oh, a question about Leviticus. No! But... Their question was, why is it necessary for the female to go through these purification rites when it's a newborn baby? You've got a baby that has not sinned. Why is all this necessary for them to be purified? And the reality was, and this always makes mothers everywhere really happy when I state this, is that even for a newborn child, because of our sin nature, it's important to understand we have a nature 
problem, that our very nature is one of uh, sinners. We don't, uh, we don't sin because we're, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. It's what we do it, from birth. In fact, if you look at a, a small child, it's why they can uh, lie, why they can cheat, why they can steal. They can do all these things even if we haven't taught it to them because it's natural for them. It's in their nature. And so as the child is born, what in reality we have while they're cute and squishy and sometimes stinky, uh, these are little sin buckets. That's really what they are. Mothers love it when I say that. But they, they are born little buckets of sin. They just can't wait. they got sinning to do and they can't wait to do it. And so the reality is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All flesh is sinful. And so we have this need for the mother to be purified because of our sin nature. And so this should hopefully raise a few red flags in your mind. Why then, if we, being born of a man and a woman, should need purification, why would this be the case for Jesus? He wasn't from the seed of the man, but from the... Holy Spirit. And so why would he need to go through these things? Why would Mary have to experience this? And what we find is, uh, if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we studied this in our study through Corinthians. Uh, here, here you go, a little clue into what Jesus was up to. Uh, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him that Jesus became sin even though he knew no sin for you and I so that we might receive his righteousness that you and I that we were born sinners we we were we have this nature we can't help but sin it's what we do and we try to clean it up and give God a little bit of our righteousness but what Isaiah says is our righteousness to him is as of filthy rags and this is a little uh, PG-13 so you can do the earmuff thing if you need to but but filthy rags literally in the Hebrew what he meant were were minstrel cloths this is our righteousness that's the best we can do and, and this is on our best day. And so we need His righteousness to replace our filthiness. And this is what Jesus came to do. And it's important to understand that as He went through His life, He didn't go through these things and experience them because He was condemned. He did it so that He could identify with us. Not for condemnation, but for identification. He, what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 is this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest, King Jesus, can sympathize with us. He was tempted in every way as we were tempted, and yet He did it without sin, becoming the very fulfillment of the law. And so what we find is Jesus came to identify with us as sinners. He came to save us from the very sin that seeks to destroy us and separate us from God for all of eternity. And what Jesus said in His own words as He was speaking to those religious elite in Luke chapter 5 was this. These were Pharisees that were questioning Jesus because He would hang out with sinners and liars and tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus says this in verse 31, Jesus said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus made it perfectly clear the group that He came for, and that was the sinful. Those who knew when they looked in the mirror, we don't have it all together. 
We're the ones that need saved. Those that who are righteous or better said self-righteous, these overly religious that thought they had it all together, they didn't even realize their own depravity. And Jesus said, I don't have a word for them. I've got a word for those who know that they're sinners. I've come for them. They're the ones that need a doctor. And so we find our Lord and Savior was all about healing sinners. Now, if we continue in this scene with Mary and Joseph at the temple, and what we see is in verse 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And what we know from Hebrew is the name Simeon, it means uh, God has heard. So Simeon, his name meaning God has heard, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so Simeon, whose name meant God had heard, had been waiting for years because he had heard a word from the Lord that he would not taste death until he had seen the Messiah, the consolation of Israel, or the comforter of Israel. And no doubt for Simeon, being an old man now, he probably mentioned this a time or two or thirty to people as he went to the temple. You can imagine the scene. Simeon coming into the temple daily, and what do the priests uh, say? But, oh, hello, Simeon, how are you? I am great, waiting for the Messiah. The Lord told me I would not taste death until I see the Messiah. Yes, we know, Simeon. We heard you say it the first 200 times, right? So, I mean, you, you can imagine this is Simeon as he's excited that God was up to something. And yet, notice with me what's said of Simeon, who heard from the Lord, is that he was a just man and was devout. That if you desire to hear from the Lord, here's a little key. Be just, or the word could also be translated dependable, and be devout. This is the root word for our word uh, devotional. That when we seek God dependably, uh, regularly, when we do it in a devout way, in a devotional way, this is you in your quiet time, the promises you will hear. And so as we come upon a new year, like I do every year, I want to encourage you to make this a part of your daily routine. Make it a part of what is you regularly seeking Him. Do it early in the morning, not when you've already tired out. If you're looking for a Bible plan, there's the Bible study together plan out there. It's free. There's pamphlets. There's an app. There's all the things you would need, all the tools you would need to read daily and spend time in the Word. And here's the thing. If you do that regularly, I promise you, you will hear from Him. It might not always be audibly. It might be just a word that He gives you that speaks to your heart that day, something you needed to hear in that moment at that time. The Lord's promises, He will speak to you. What Simeon also had, and this is important to note, that in the Christian life, if you want to be used by God, the most important ability Simeon had was availability. Now years ago, before we had kids, I used to love to watch the NFL draft. And now we're 22 years into marriage and my wife can't stand the NFL draft. So we don't even turn it on in our house. But, but I loved, I don't know if it's a guy thing, I like numbers and lists and, and I got excited about that. And I remember one particular uh, draft that there was one of my favorite announcers. He was the former coach of the Jets and he went on to Arizona State, a guy named Herm Edwards. And he was talking about a particular draft pick and he said, this player has the one ability every coach is looking for in the NFL. I'm like, well, this guy must be a stud. And then Herm Edwards said, he has availability. And that's the thing. It, it doesn't matter how good you are, how talented you are, how wealthy you are, how good looking you are. 
if you're not available, God can't use you. We have to make ourselves available to the Lord in order for Him to be able to use us. And so the greatest asset that a Christian can have in their walk is to be available for God to use. And so Simeon had made himself available to the Lord. Now, we continue in verse 27. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And so what we find is Simeon takes baby Jesus and pronounces this blessing over him. But what I love about this is not only did Simeon have the gift of availability, but he also had flexibility. What I mean by that is for years he'd been given a word by the Lord that he would see the Christ. He would see the Mashiach that for generations they had waited upon. And no doubt in Simeon's mind he had all these preconceived notions about how he would see the Lord's Christ. He, he had visions of grandeur most likely. He had perhaps even read Psalm 110 which says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord shall send a rod of your strength out of Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. And so here in this Roman-occupied Israel, Simeon's excited about that. Like, Lord, show up on a white horse, take out my enemies, whoop some Roman hiney, I can't wait for you to be in charge. Come on, Jesus. And yet, here he is, and the Lord has promised that he would let him see the Christ. And what he sees is a lower middle-class carpenter, a teenage mom, and a baby. I mean, of all things, this looks probably nothing like how he thought Jesus would come. And the reality is, oftentimes, Jesus comes in ways and in packages that we would never, ever expect. A word from a friend, a word from Scripture, even a small child, the Lord shows up in a way in the most unexpected, uncommon, unconventional ways. And in order to see Him, we have to be willing to be flexible. Pastor Chuck, who started Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in the late 1960s, had this saying that I've shared with many of you. But in his big, deep, booming voice on Sundays, he would say, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Blessed are the flexible, for we shall not be broken when we're flexible. And far too often, people are rigid and what we think God must do, fit in this box, come in this way. And the reality is people end up being broken, families broken, churches broken because we're not willing to be flexible. And so I love this out of Simeon, that he was willing to be flexible with what God had for him. And what we find is he now gives this prophetic word inspired by the Spirit. And note with me, speaking of flexible, he says in verse 32, he shall be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. The Jews hated the Gentiles as much as the Romans. And yet the Lord said He will be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, confirming prophetic words dating all the way back to Isaiah. And so 
Jesus now being grabbed out of his mother's arms, I just want to make it clear that if you haven't already processed this in this theme, in this scene, um, this is crazy. This is flat out crazy town. In any generation, in any culture, for an old dude to take a baby from their mother's arms and start babbling prophetic words, it's crazy. Get that through your like this is a wild scene. This freaks a mom out. Like, what is he doing? To my baby. And so this is the scene that we're at right now. And he continues, and Joseph and his mother marveled, I'd say, at those things which were spoken of him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul and the thoughts of many may be revealed. So as we see in the life of Simeon, he was willing to be available. He was willing to be flexible. And I love this last piece. He was also willing to be honest. i got to imagine when the Lord was giving him a word to share, he was probably a little bit nervous about this word. He was probably excited about, hey, he's going to be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. That's a little controversial. But then do I really have to share with this kid's mother that her soul is going to be pierced. And yet, Simeon was willing in love to communicate honestly to this mother what she was going to experience. And the Lord oftentimes gives us a heads up to things that are going to be hard. He will, he will oftentimes give us a clue, tip us off, because God wants us to be prepared for what He's up to. And so we see this prophetic word that he gives to Mary. And what we find is, even if you skip ahead just another chapter into chapter 2, verse 48 and 49, that as you arrive on this next scene, we see Jesus now advance in years. To he's now 12 years old. And his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, they go to Jerusalem for the Passover. They go all the way from Nazareth to Jerusalem. They celebrate the Feast of Passover. And then they're headed back. They're a day's journey away from Jerusalem. And before they lay their heads down at night, they have one of those awkward mom and dad conversations where uh, Mary says, Joe, do you have Jesus? And Mary says, no, I thought you had Jesus. And so a day's journey had gone by, and these two, these two people who have been handpicked by God to watch over the Messiah, they lost Jesus! If ever, as parents, we question whether we're good or bad at this thing, I look at this story and I feel way better about me as a parent every time I read it. Like, you know what I've never done? Lost the Messiah. I'm not, maybe I'm not the greatest dad, but I didn't lose Jesus. So if ever you feel like you're a little bit less than, just realize uh, what Jesus was working with, with Mary and Joseph. They now have to turn around and go an entire day back to Jerusalem. They then spend the whole day looking for Jesus. Three days had gone by and they'd lost the king of the universe. And, and where do they find him? But they finally find him there at the temple, probably the first place they should have looked. And Mary says in verse 48, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? You see, even at an early age, even at 12, Jesus is laying out there for us how we are to operate as people. We are to put God first, even above our family, even above those who are in our own gene pool. 
that we think should be first. The reality is Jesus put God first. He must be on the throne. And, and by the way, as I say that, and that sounds crass that I should put God even above my kids, understand that the thing you put first, He becomes your God. That's, that's what you worship. What we fear is what we worship. What we put first is what we worship. And as we consider that, what God is really trying to do is protect us. Because what happens when God gets sick? What happens when God doesn't love us anymore? What happens when God turns His back on us? It's heartbreaking, right? And so what God wants to do is protect us from that, in that relationship. He wants to be first and foremost in our lives. It's a way that He can protect us among a slew of other things. And so the Lord desires to be first, and Jesus displays this. What also transpires in the life of Jesus as He now goes into His ministry in Matthew chapter 12 is that He's now fully into His ministry. People are now referring to Him as the Messiah. He's giving these wonderful teachings and healing people, and everybody's excited except His own family. To them, this was uh, pressure and expectation and questions and doubting. And so at this point in time, Mary and her other children, they go to where Jesus is at and His disciples come to Him in Matthew chapter 12, verse 47 and say, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. They are wanting to tell you to pipe down, stop with all the crazy preaching. It's too much for us. And Jesus responds in verse 48 and says this, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? In verse 49, he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was making it clear that while blood is thicker than water, as they like to say, something that is far thicker than blood is the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is by God thicker than even blood. And if you wonder inside your own family why is Jesus is changing you from the inside out, you struggle to have connection and relatability to them, it's because uh, blood is maybe thicker than water, but the Spirit is far thicker than all those things. And so the, the reality is you can go to Africa, you can go to the Philippines, you can go all over this world and be with other believers and actually have more in common with them and to be able to get along with them better than you can even some of your own family because of this reality. The Spirit is that strong. And so Jesus, again, He places this high value on spiritual relationships. Now, one last place to turn as we consider Mary's soul being pierced is in John chapter 19. And here in this scene, Mary is now standing at the cross. She's watched her son uh, tried illegally and convicted unlawfully, and now uh, beaten, and he is about to be murdered. And in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that is John the Apostle, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. No doubt her soul had to be ran right through as she looked upon what they had done to her firstborn son. Literally, her soul had been pierced. And so when we see God coming, when we see Jesus coming to seek and save the sinner and also even the crazy person, He also comes to seek and to save those who are brokenhearted. Now, one last place to turn in Scripture. Verse 36. While this whole scene is still going on with uh, Simon, with Simeon holding the baby and uh, 
Mary and Joseph marveling. Now, in verse 36, there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And so now enter into this already crazy scene. You've got this old lady who had been in the temple day and night. Her name was Anna. And we're told a little bit about her that her father's name was uh, Phanuel. And Phanuel in Hebrew means the face of God. And so no doubt Anna would have grown up in a very devout, godly household. We're, we're told here that she was a, a prophetess, and so she had her own spiritual journey, and it would appear that godliness likely ran in her family. And I shared this with you a, a few weeks ago, but it's worth repeating, that if you as parents or even grandparents desire to have godly children, uh, here's the way to raise godly kids. Um, this is really complicated. I thought this up all on my own. Be godly. If you desire to have godly children, be godly. Let them see it in your face and in your actions. And so we have this opportunity to have a godly generation if we are willing to be godly. Now we're also told that she was a, uh, married to her husband, and then after seven years from her virginity, uh, he died. She became a widow of about 84 years. Now we don't know whether that means Anna is 84 years old or she lived 84 years after her husband had died. But either way, her husband had been gone a long time and she was an old lady who knew an awful lot about heartbreak. She knew a lot about what it was to live with heartbreak and loss and pain in her life. And she had, by our worldly estimation, every right to be bitter about it. She had every right to be bitter. And yet, instead of being bitter, what we see in Anna is she was blessed. She had made a decision to instead of having the root of bitterness grow up and take hold in her, that she would be blessed. And how did she do it, you might wonder? How did she take this heartbreaking season and turn it into a blessing? Now, I'm going to share a few things, three in particular, that we see from Anna's life. First of all, one of the secrets she unveils for us to living a life instead of bitterness of blessedness is that she was a woman of prayer. She prayed to the Lord. Verse 37, she was a, a widow who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. She could have spent her time uh, you know, fumbling around and being upset and moaning to anyone that would have listened, but instead, she used what God had given her, made herself available to the Lord, and used that time to be a mighty prayer warrior, interceding on behalf of the people around her. She used her time to pray to the Lord, to seek after Him. The second thing to note, is that, notice with me, she came in that instant and gave thanks to the Lord. She was a woman like Simeon who anticipated that God was going to show up today. I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know in what package, but I'm anticipating that God is up to something today. And so I ask you this rhetorical question, do you anticipate you're going to see the Lord today? Do you? I was 
at a uh, retreat years ago. My pastor, Mike Harrison down in Farmington, used to take us to this place. We called it the Hermitage. It was south of St. Louis, right on the banks of the Mississippi, and actually owned and operated by the Catholic Church. And they would allow ministers and church leaders to come and rent these little, uh, I, I don't know what you'd call I called them hobbit holes. They looked like a little, they were carved out of the side of a of the hill, and they had dirt over the top of the roof. It was just a little one bed, one bathroom spot where you could just go and in the quiet be away with the Lord. And we, we would typically spend the day just fasting and praying by ourselves. And, and I remember this one particular occasion, I was there, and I was in this spot, I just wanted to hear from God. I just wanted to anticipate that He was going to move in my life somehow. And so I, I wandered through the woods and found myself down along the banks of the Mississippi, just listening to the water rush by and the, the, the water swirl around and made those noises that it made. And, and I was praying like, God, I just, I want to see you today. I want to see you. Would you show up? And, and what he whispered to my heart that day was, if you make me very, very big, I can show up in the smallest of ways. But if you make me very small, I have to show up in some really big ways for you to even notice that I exist. And so I share that truth with you, that if you make God big, in everywhere you will find that you see Him. In the, you know, the blowing of the wind through the trees and the rustling of the leaves and the birds chirping and the sound of rushing water. If you, if you make Him big, if you have expectation that you're going to hear from Him, even a, a random text through something in the Old Testament, the Lord can speak to you through that thing. You can see Him and hear from Him, but here's the other side. If you make Him small, if you put him in a box and you believe God must work in this way, fit in this mold, then he has to show up in some big ways for you to even recognize him. And so my encouragement is to be like Anna. Make God big today. Lastly and thirdly, notice with me that she spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Anna spoke about the Lord to anyone who would listen. Anyone she came across who would listen, who was seeking redemption, she shared about the Lord. He was the first thing on her mind, the first thing out of her mouth. And any of those who were looking for redemption, what they got a glimpse of, what they got a piece of was her testimony. Often we think we have to have some evangelical message to share with people. You know what really impacts them? Your testimony. What is God doing in your life? Yes, what He has done, that's an important piece of your testimony, but also share what is He currently doing in your life. Making Him present and real. And it's by this that the enemy is actually defeated. In fact, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 what we read there is, they, the saints, overcame Him, that is Satan, by these two things, the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. They weren't so concerned about their flesh. They were concerned about the King. And they weren't afraid to share their testimony. This is how powerful our testimony is because it's not really our story. It's His story. It's His story in our life. It's Him doing things actively, currently in our lives. Now oftentimes as I get ready and prepare and study for a message, I don't know if this is this way for everybody that, that teaches the Word of God, but, but typically what God does is He has me in some way, shape, or form in that week uh, live out whatever He's teaching me 
in that particular week. And so this week wasn't any exception. I've been studying through and reading about uh, Anna as a prophetess and all that she meant to the people around her and her family. And what transpired this week, I actually wrote this on uh, Tuesday, but then Thursday evening uh, I got a phone call. And I got a phone call in the afternoon from my father that my grandmother was experiencing chest pains and that she was being taken to Sarah Bush. And we were with the kids at the YMCA. And so I said, hey, we're going to be with the kids at the Y. If I need to stop by the hospital on the way back, just let me know what's going on. And uh, went into the Y and made our way back out with our kids and got loaded in the car. And uh, he had called me just as we got in the car. And he said, well, she's gone. Just like that, she's she's gone. She'd had a heart attack and she died, likely on the way to the hospital. And so I share that to say that what the Lord was showing me is that I had lost an Anna in my life this week. And when I think about my grandmother, Roberta Ashley, this defined her life. She was a woman of prayer. She prayed for people. She prayed for people as a little kid. I remember her being on the phone, praying with people for what seemed like hours. I never heard a woman talk so much, pray so much. I'm like, my goodness. And she would pray anywhere for anybody. She was not ashamed of her Lord. She was a woman of prayer, a mighty prayer warrior. The reality is, uh, y'all, we are not sitting in this building right now without the prayer warrior that she was. I'm not here, I can tell you that. And so she was a woman of prayer. Secondly, she was one who always sought the Lord with anticipation. She would look out to see where is God going to show up in this situation. My grandmother was notorious for losing things. She lost everything she ever put her hands on. She just lost, and almost always it was her pen. She'd have a pen ready to write something, mark it down in her Bible, but invariably she couldn't find the pen that she just had in her hand. And that might seem like a flaw, but actually it ended up being a blessing, a faith builder, because she would just immediately pray and cry out to the Lord, Lord, show me where my pen is at. And, and invariably the Lord would provide, I don't know if it was that same pen, but there would be another pen, probably the one she lost before. And so you would see then a praising of God for the good thing He had done because she anticipated that she was going to see God that day. She had a life of anticipation that God was going to show up. Thirdly, and finally, she was one who always spoke of the Lord. You never had a conversation with Roberta Ashley, that she was not speaking about what God was up to in her life, what God had done in her life, and what she was expecting Him to do in her life to come. She was excited about her opportunity to be at the feet of King Jesus. And so she would share a life of anticipation, speaking to people of, here's the thing, redemption and hope. What people needed to hear was about the hope that she had in Christ Jesus. And so, as we wrap up, what I want to share with you this morning is whether you're in here as a sinner, as a crazy person, as a heartbroken person, or if you're like me, probably a little bit of all three. Here's the thing that God actually asks from us. He wants us to respond. He's not expecting us to have it all together He's not expecting us to have it all figured out. In fact, He came for the heartbroken and the crazy and the sinner to meet them where they're at. And His desire is for us to respond in the place that we're at. 
And as we respond, here's the thing. As we respond, if we respond to Him, what I promise you will happen is He will begin to change you from the inside out. If you're here today and you wonder, I think maybe I've responded at some point in time in my past, and yet looking at your life, you see no change, I got news for you, um, then you don't know the same Jesus I know. If there is no uh, Jesus, there is no change. If there is no change, there is no Jesus. And it doesn't mean the change is going to all happen all at once, and immediately overnight you're going to be changed and different, but you are going to be made new. 1 John 1.9 says that we have been cleansed, but we're also being cleansed. You understand? Be ye being cleansed is the idea. I am sanctified. I am set apart. But he is also currently sanctifying me and setting me apart. We don't have it all together, but he is changing things in our life. You should be able to look at your life and go, I see God is up to things. I see that he is changing things in me based upon something as simple as a response. And as I respond to him, what he will do is he will change a sinner to a saint, a crazy person to someone with wisdom. The heartbroken will become hopeful and the bitter become blessed just by simply responding to King Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for people in our lives who are Anna's, who have meant so very much. And Lord, I pray uh, right now for those of us in this room that still have breath in our lungs, that we would seek to become like an Anna. Lord, as, as Roberta Ashley's of the world pass off the scene, we need desperately those to step in, to fill in the gap, to continue to be the prayer warriors, to live lives of anticipating to see you, to live lives that are looking for you in a big way, to work out in our lives. So we need those in this next generation to step up, a people that are holy and separated for you, Lord. Help us to be that. Lord, help us to be the next generation of prayer warriors. Father, for those who have not responded, I pray that you would give the courage to respond. Even if it's just right there in their seat and nobody knows it. I'd love to find out about it even if it's weeks and months later. But Lord, I want you to have a real relationship with every person in this room. Not a religion something contrived by man, but a real one-on-one -on -one relationship. And I know, Lord, that you have the power and the ability and the desire to change them from the inside out. I've seen you do it far too many times, including in this life right here. Father, please give the courage and the faith. Lord, we struggle with belief. Please help our unbelief. Father, we thank you for who you made us to be. We thank you for who you're crafting us and carving us into, that the old man can be put away, that the old woman can be dead, and all things can be made new. Thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to become sin for us and giving us your righteousness. We pray all this and we thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.